This episode is sponsored by Voltoro. Keep on listening and you'll find out more about how you can buy allocated gold when the Bitcoin bull run reaches its peak. This way, you don't have to deal with infinitely inflationary fiat or banks that freeze your account. Also, note that trading involves risks and the information presented is not financial advice. This episode is also sponsored by Wasabi Wallet. Go to wasabiwallet.io, download Wasabi for your OS and significantly boost your network level and transaction privacy. Hello there and welcome to Season 8, Episode 1 of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad and this season is going to be all about hardware wallets and presenting the best ways and the most affordable ways in which you can protect your Bitcoins from attackers and establish a threat model for yourself. And basically just find a good way to get your coins off from exchanges and store them by yourself and become truly sovereign. And this first episode is going to be about the Bitbox O2, which is a device that's made in Switzerland. It has some very interesting and very fascinating cryptography and research work behind it. Internally, I think it's like the cold card because it uses the same secure element chip. But there's more to it and it has a very intuitive user interface. You can run you can connect to your own node, you can run Tor, you can do all sorts of cool stuff with it, like multi-sigs, and it's one of the fastest hardware wallets at performing complex multi-sigs, and it's not just me who says it, it turned out to be that way in Jameson Lop's test for CASA. And my guest today is Benma, who has been writing research, and he has been hacking other hardware wallets, and... His work, actually, even if you don't like the Bitbox and you have never used it, his work has improved the security of other hardware wallets just because he has discovered and honestly and ethically disclosed the vulnerabilities to the manufacturers. So hello, Benma. Hello, Vlad. Thanks for inviting me to your show. Yeah, it was a long intro, but I hope I captured the context for this interview. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, I should also, of course, mention that I am the a developer of the Bitbox too. I think you might have missed that. But yeah, the other stuff, of course, is also absolutely correct. Yeah, obviously. So you are a software developer. You have worked on some really cool stuff. You are also a hacker of hardware wallets because you have found a vulnerability in the cold card Mark III. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself a hacker, hacker, actually. So the thing is, I just work on the Bitbox too. And as part of the process of developing the Bitbox O2, I just, you know, by accident, basically noticed a few weaknesses in the other manufacturers. And so I reported them. That is basically the whole story there. That's very diplomatic of you to say. And I hope you got yourself a nice bounty for that research work. (laughs) Unfortunately not, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's not open that can of worms. So the Bitbox O2 was launched in 2019. And I think it has brought some very useful research to the hardware wallet market. And how has the journey 
of this device been so far? Well, you know, the journey has been really exciting and really rewarding. You know, we've been we've put a lot of work into the Bitbox O2 and also the Bitbox app. And it's just so great to see that, you know, our users like the Bitbox O2 and they're super happy how they can handle it. They're in control. You know, they, they feel safe. That's really, really rewarding. So yeah, we, we've launched uh, Bitbox O2 as a beta program in end of 2019. And, you know, beta program was a closed beta. So that means we sent out like a few hundred devices for free to users that applied to the program. And we just had them, you know, use it as they would use the hardware wallet in a normal setting. And the purpose of that was just, just to gather feedback, you know, is, it, is the device working for them? What are some, you know, pitfalls and weaknesses they went into, they walked into? And the feedback has been really, really good. So people generally like the device a lot. Of course, they have also like reported a few issues. Yeah. And for example, they, uh, one of the issues that was reported by your users was that the SD card slot was like a little bit difficult to use in the first version. So they would like insert the SD card and then they would have trouble getting it out again because it was like all the way into the device. And so we fixed that in the next hardware revision. And ever since, you know, we have a, like a little clicky thing where you can insert the SD card and get it out easily again. And the other issues mentioned were, for example, you know, uh, that, that we have two touch sliders on the Bitbox O2 instead of a touch screen. And people said that sometimes they would not like reliably detect their touch. And we've still then also spent a lot of time improving this. And now after we've launched, you know, the real product on the market, people have come back to the device and they've given us great compliments that everything is now working much better. The touch is working great now. Like the, the experience is very much like improved and polished. So yeah, really happy about the whole process so far. Oh, yes. And I'm holding the Bitbox O2 in my hands right now. And I can attest that it's easy to remove the SD card. It's just slightly outside. So you just push it and it comes out. And I don't know. I think the touch controls work fine. Sometimes I have to double press, but I think that's my fault because the device feels very, I don't know, stylish and i don't want to touch it too hard as if you know brutalize it or something <laughs> so maybe that my touches are too soft but otherwise it's really interesting and let me compliment this way of typing your input because you have three columns on which you find all of the letters of the alphabet so for example if you type the letter a you're going to pick the left column three times because you pick the column with letters from A to, I don't know, I think it's K, and then you choose letters, basically three steps for each letter before you pick it. And this improves your privacy in the sense that if you had a touch screen and you had a keyboard that you touched, it would be a lot easier to determine which spots of the screen you have touched. But if you have only three columns, is going to be a nightmare for anyone to figure out which letters you have picked. So nobody can actually reverse engineer this process and figure out what your pin number was or what your passphrase was if you set up one. So that's something that I like and that I figured out as I was using the device. 
That's good to hear. Yeah, we've been breaking our brains, figuring out how to make the password input as efficient as possible. That was not an easy task. I think we did a good job. Like the form factor of the Bitbox 2 is a little bit small, like kind of like a USB stick. So there's only so many things you can do, right? So in the past, we've had like a version where, you know, you had the whole alphabet laid out and you would scroll through the alphabet as a, like with a slider. And that was actually working kind of okay, but I think it was like just less efficient than basically using three taps per letter that can be quite quick, especially if you get used to it. Oh yeah, I, I think that's what Ledger does with scrolling through every letter to input. And it's a lot slower. You have to press those two buttons a lot. Right. But anyway, I've asked about the position of the Bitbox O2 on the hardware wallet market, but there are so many devices nowadays and you can find a hardware wallet for anything from like $20 to 170. I think there are also premium devices that cost up to $500. So what makes the Bitbox O2 unique and what do you find in it that you don't find in any other device? In my opinion, uh, we've put a lot of effort into making the Bitbox O2 the easiest to use device for beginners. So for me, it's very important that um, people that want to get into Bitcoin and want, want to do self-custody, that they can do it, right? And one prerequisite is that the solution they use is very easy to use. So um, for example, in the Bitbox O2, we employ the SD card to make backups and to restore from backup. And that is... Um, a lot easier to, to use than, for example, the 24 words and backup that you can find in other hardware wallets usually. Uh, for example, you know when users write down those words, they suffer from something we call mnemonic anxiety. It's because you, know, you start writing those words and you're really nervous that you get every word right. There's no typos. You have to spend a lot of time doing this and then you know, also check that the backup is okay. And all of this kind of falls away if you just want to get started quickly. Of course, we also allow you know to export the twenty-four words if you if you want to or need to. And so we, we have a lot of other features um, that I think are great for beginners. For example, in the app, we have a, a guide that is context sensitive. So whenever you do something, for example, you want to receive or you want to send, then the guide will basically just you know, depending on the context, tell you helpful stuff that you can learn or do or what you need to know. Um, another thing is, I think that only we do at the moment is we have something we call unified accounts, and it's actually a very simple concept. For example, uh, when when you open the Bitbox app and you plug in your Bitbox or two, then you will land into one account called Bitcoin, and that is, you know, of course, what what else would expect. But you know, before the unified accounts feature, we and also the other hardware wallets, they had like basically multiple accounts per coin. And they were, for example, legacy account, and then you know there's native SegWit account and wrapped SegWit account, and in the future there will be taproot accounts. So this is all like technical jargon that I feel like a beginner to Bitcoin shouldn't have to worry about. Of course they can if they want to, but it's just all hurdles that make the experience a lot more confusing, and then you feel less safe as a result. So we've tried to eliminate most of those issues. Yeah, right, yeah. but I, I think you also deserve some credit for being possibly not the first, but at the time you were the only hardware wallet manufacturer to offer full node connectivity from the app. 
Yeah, that brings me to the other part. What I really like about our solution is that it is great for beginners, but then also like it can you take you all the way to being a Bitcoin expert, right? It has like a ton of security features and power user features. Uh, for example, as you mentioned, we, we've been the first wallet to offer the ability to connect your own full node, which is a very important thing to do. But, you know, it, it goes step by step. As a beginner, you might not have to, might not want to worry about this stuff. But as time goes by and you, you know, learn more about crypto, Bitcoin, then you might want to do this. So we offer that. We also offer coin control. We have, you know, first grade multi-sig support in the Bitbox02. We have power user wallets, integrations with Electrum, Spectre, and so on. We also have a Bitcoin-only edition for the Bitcoin-only people. That The idea there is to reduce the attack surface. Like less code is better, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, like in short, I think really, if you start out with Bitcoin, Bitbox02 is a great solution. But then also you can learn all about it and keep growing with the device. Yeah, I agree with that. And I've been playing with it for quite some time. And it's always surprising to find something about which I wouldn't have thought about. And something unique about your research concerns the recent update, which included the anti-klepto feature. And as far as I can understand, it's a way to make sure that both the, the app on your computer or your phone and the hardware wallet are functioning accordingly and there are no leakages between signing transactions. It, there's no part of the private key which gets leaked. And you have resolved that with North signatures or something like that and you work with Blockstream people. I, I've read your article. It's very interesting, very technical, but at the same time also fascinating to understand that nobody else has done this before. So. I suppose you have brought something unique to the market that all the others are going to fork from now. I hope so. Yeah. So this is a really interesting project. It has been uh, basically one of my favorite things I've been working on in the past years. So, um, you know, just to step uh, back up a little bit. So if you get a hardware wallet into your hands and you assume it is like, you know, it has no bugs and it functions as advertised, then the purpose of the hardware wallet is to protect you from your computer basically like if you use a computer to interact with your device then potentially it could have malware inside that you know would try to steal your funds but the hardware wallet is supposed to protect you from that but then there's the whole other side of this which is what happens if the hardware wallet itself might be compromised in some fa some shape or form for example there could be someone trying to insert the backdoor like you know, at the manufacturing site or at the chip manufacturing site or at the PCB assembly site or even some, you know, vendor company, rogue employees. So, uh, you know, ever since we launched the Bitbox02, we've tried to put in a lot of like safeguards and features that try to help you verify your device and to make it harder and harder for like supply chain attacks to take place. And one of them is the so-called and the so-called non-covered channel attack, which would be addressed by the anti-klepto feature that we just recently released. And uh, the attack, I think, is extremely, extremely interesting in the sense that, so it, it is an attack on your seed, basically. It can, if attacked successfully, it can leak your seed from your hardware wallet to an attacker. 
in a in a way where um, there's no computer interaction needed. So concretely, this means the malicious hardware wallet um, produces signatures, right? So whenever you make a transaction, the transaction is signed using digital signatures to authorize the transaction. And what the signature contains actually is something called the uh, nonce commitment. And this signature is basically a string of bytes and they end up in the public blockchain. Like they will be mined into the Bitcoin blockchain. So an attacker can look for those. And the interesting part about this attack is that the malicious hardware wallet can influence the signatures it makes, right? It makes them. And this nonce is kind of a, a random contribution to the signature. And the hardware wallet can just influence the bytes that are put out in the signature. And by doing so, it can, like in a smart way, encode your actual private keys into the signatures and they then go straight onto the chain where the attacker can like look for them and assemble your private keys and then steal all your money. So this is a very powerful attack. It even works like, you know, in totally air-gapped systems because it goes straight from the hardware wallet to the signatures onto the chain. And it doesn't matter if you use like compute like it doesn't matter which way you use your hardware wallet it can be air gapped it can be connected to a computer it doesn't really matter and so what, what i've been working on in the past few years is to implement a protocol called anti-klepto and the idea there is that your computer wallet for example the bitbox app or electrum they can limit the way that the hardware wallet can influence the signatures and it does it effectively by just telling the hardware wallet, like, hey, here is like the nonce I want you to use to use also in the signature. And then the hardware wallet does this and it returns the signature in a way where the host wallet can like cryptograph cryptographically prove that its nonce was used in the in the result. So basically by contributing a random nonce from the wallet computer from the wallet, uh, like this ability of the hardware wallet to encode like shady stuff in the signature goes away. Yeah. And this is basically it in a nutshell. And yeah, it's been a really, really cool feature to work on. Like I've been, so a little bit of history about this. So uh, Sergio Lerner, I think was maybe one of the first to suggest that this issue even existed on Bitcoin Talk like many years ago. And then ever since a lot of discussion has taken place all over the place. And Jonas Nick from Blockstream has actually implemented the anti-klepto feature for Schnorr signatures, which is like a, you know, the upcoming soft fork to Bitcoin. It's like a different way of doing signatures. So he's already like been planning ahead to implement this safeguard for Schnorr signatures. But today, um, Bitcoin only uses ECDSA signatures before Schnorr is activated. So I wanted to have this feature like right now, basically. I didn't want to wait for this. So then I took his code and backported it to also work with ECDSA signatures. And I've been doing this work in the SecP, LibSecP library, which is you know the one that the Bitbox O2 uses for signing transactions. And it's the same one that Bitcoin Core also uses to verify transactions and so on. So it's been a cool collaborative effort between myself and then Jonas Nick has been like reviewing the code for a long time. And then eventually also Andrew Fuelstruck came in and rebased my work and like brought it like basically brought it to a state where it can be merged into the re repository. Yeah. So last month we launched this feature for the Bitbox O2. The Bitbox app already now enforces that the hardware wallet cannot do any any kind of shenanigans with the signatures. And as time goes by, like the downstream wallets like 
Electrum, Spectre, MyFo Wallet, and so on. They will also support this. Voltoro, and that's V-A-U-L-T, like a gold volt, and O-R-O, Oro, which is Spanish for gold, is a gold and Bitcoin exchange, which offers instant swaps between hard money to over 31,000 customers from more than 95 countries. Voltoro has offered Swiss privacy and security since 2015. Furthermore, the gold you purchase is your legal property, secured in your name, so even if something happens to Voltoro, even liquidators could not touch your gold. If you want to become the custodian of your own gold bars, you can request to have them delivered to you or simply trade them back to Bitcoin on the dip. Register for free in only 30 seconds and start trading only with hard money. Please keep in mind that all trading involves risks. This is not financial advice and you are responsible for your own decisions. When you are using Wasabi Wallet, your internet connection gets routed through the Tor network by default. This means that you get better privacy while using Bitcoin. Download it today at wasabiwallet.io I like Jonas Nick. He was on the podcast in season six and I got to talk with him about Schnorr signatures. And I was also joined by Peter Todd and Aleko Svilini halfway through the interview. It was quite a marathon. It happened during the Parallel Nepalis conference. Very cool. Yeah. And I, like I was about to mention that the Bitbox O2 already had this encryption between the device and the computer. So if you were using a compromised cable, you did not leak any kind of information just because there is encryption going on, right? But now you have taken it a step further and you're making the device and the computer verify each other, basically making the Bitbox app verify the validity of the device to prevent it from leaking parts of your private key. Did I get this right? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, Bitbox O2 is, I think, the only device out there at the moment that encrypts the communication from the device to the like computer and back. And yeah, you got it right. The app itself is checking on the hardware wallet instead of the other way around, right? Usually it's the other way around. But there's a few exceptions, like anti-klepto is one exception where the computer wallet checks on the hardware wallet. The other one is that we have an attestation check, but basically a genuine check where the computer basically asks a challenge to the Bitbox O2. And only if the Bitbox O2 was made by shift, it could respond with the correct answer. So that is happening before you even proceed to the unlock step. And that is another example where the wallet app is checking on the horror wallet instead of the other way around. So let's mention the other side of the Bitbox app, because I suppose a lot of people also buy the Bitbox O2 because of its mail port. It has this USB-C connector, which goes directly into your USB-C port. And this is also compatible with Android devices. And I suppose a lot of users get the Bitbox O2 for mobile connectivity. And I was about to ask you, are there any major differences in terms of usability and security? Or do you just get the exact same features on desktop and on mobile? 
Yeah, when I started like architecting the Bitbox app, one of the requirements was that it should be able to run on all the platforms, basically, which includes like the three desktops, Linux, macOS, and Windows, and then also mobile. And so I've been spending a lot of weeks like, basically just going through all the text stacks that are available out there to produce apps on multiple platforms. And I finally found one that is actually very good. So we are using the programming language called Golang, and it compiles to every platform out there, including Android. And so we, we set out to make the Bitbox app in this language mostly. It also has like great like community support for all sorts of crypto stuff, which is an added bonus. But what this effectively means in the end is that the Bitbox app that we ship on desktop and on Android is the exact same app. So apart from the you know frame, there's like a native frame in the in on Android and the native frame on desktop. All the rest is absolutely the same. So like the you can do for example firmware upgrades as, um, on the mobile app as well as well as on the desktop app. You can do receive, send, device management. It looks the same. It feels the same. The security store is the same when it comes to the app per se, right? But then of course you can also look at the environment. So there. Uh, there can be made an argument for that mobile apps are just more safe than desktop apps in general because of all the sandboxing that um, you know mobile like Android provides. For example, uh, Android apps run in a sandbox, right? In a the, when it comes to execution, but also storage. So just in in general, like maybe this is an area where you could say that the Android app is a bit safer. But at the same time, you have to of course notice that. The Bitbox O2 exists to protect you from malicious wallets. So even if you had a malicious wallet, if you use the device correctly, there should be no problem. So, so there might be a small difference, like in in security, but I think it should be negligible, and the usability should be absolutely the same. So even the features that are more advanced, such as connecting to your full node and running Tor, are they also available on the mobile? Yes, they are. So you can connect your full node the same way as you would do on the desktop. You can enable Tor, although we uh, like not on the desktop app, but also on Android, we don't bundle the Tor client. You have to run like your like for example on desktop, also the Tor browser, and on Android you can run something like Orbit. Yeah, potentially in the future we'll you know ship a bundle version of Tor, but this is the way it works for now. And yeah, all, like also Coin Control works on mobile. Uh, the anti-clapto feature, the encrypted communication. Basically, everything is absolutely the same. Right, that's very good because usually mobile apps are like a stripped down version of the desktop ones and they take take away some features to make the apps easier to use or more convenient. But I, I think you've done a fairly good job in making the Bitbox app easy to use. But I was about to ask about something which was actually brought on Twitter. And this concerns compatibility with Chrome OS and Chromebooks, as there are apparently users who have laptops that use Google's OS, and they're interested in potentially using the Bitbox O2 with their devices. Will there be any support or compatibility for Chrome OS? So, so technically speaking, the app also compiles and builds fine on Chrome OS. But I the last time I checked, it was maybe like six, seven, eight months ago, 
the issue was that Chrome OS wouldn't expose the USB stack it had underneath to the app level or something like that. So it was impossible at the time to basically have the Bitbox connect to the app. Uh, I ha- I'll have to check again if you know maybe this changed, but as soon as it changes, we'll we'll offer support for this for sure. Yeah. Right. You know, this is the part of the interview where I'm going to ask you about the other devices on the market. And you'll have to say something that you like and something that you appreciate about them and something that you think that the Bitbox O2 does better as compared to them. So I'm going to start with the Trezor Model T. What do you like about it and what do you think that the Bitbox O2 does better? Okay, so Model T, yeah. So when I first got the Model T, I unwrapped it and I plugged it in and then I got to use their touch interface and I was really, really impressed how well that worked for me. Like I had, I could enter the pin and password without a lot of trouble at all and very fast. So I was really impressed. Like obviously they put in a ton of effort into making this part very, very nice. So it really paid off. And yes, for the Bitbox O2, I think one of the advantages is that uh, Bitbox O2 has a male USB-C plug, so you can use it like with, uh, with the phone on the go without any additional cables. That you know, it's always a mess to keep them around or have them around. And maybe another part is that we the Bitbox O2 also contains a secure chip inside, which helps with strengthening your device password. Like it helps to strengthen the encryption of the seat, technically speaking. And what this actually helps in a nutshell with is that you can get away with a weaker password for the same security level. And, you know, the Trezor Fox have, uh, don't have a secure chip, but they have um, the optional passphrase feature with a bit 39, um, aka 25th word, which they say you can basically use to mitigate all sorts of physical attacks. And I think that's a fair statement, but at the same time, I feel like the uh, you know the passphrase is actually very difficult to use in a in a correct fashion. Like it has a lot of pitfalls. For example, if you make a typo or you lose it, you basically lose access to your funds, and it's not normally part of your backup or like not in a standard backup. So I think it has some pitfalls to use, which a secure chip can mitigate. So I think this is where we are doing a little bit better. Yeah, in my interview with Slush, he made it clear that at some point during the development of the Trezor Model T. He wanted to add a secure element chip, but was not happy with the fact that it was not all open source. And that's why he started a venture nowadays. It's called Tropic Square, and he wants to produce truly open source security chips that you can fully audit. You know what they're doing, but at the same time also provide the extra physical protection that you find in ledgers, for example. Yeah, I've heard about this project and I really, really wish them so much luck with this. It would be amazing if, if it worked out in the end. Like the world needs an open source secure chip for sure. Oh yeah. And I suppose the use case extends beyond hardware wallets, but if this got released, we will we will have basically or all across the board secure chips that are more transparent than the ones that we have today. So Definitely. I think that's a net positive. Yeah. And also something that I feel like I should say at this point in comparison with Trezor, I think that you guys provide better quality USB cables. Ah, uh-huh. okay, interesting. Yeah, so uh, I don't think, you know, the engineers work on the devices or the coders 
are very much concerned with the quality of the cables. But the one that I got with the Trezor Model T was very thin. And sometimes it was disconnecting. It was kind of flimsy. So I replaced it with another one that I had from my Nintendo Switch, which was a lot thicker. <laughs> and it functioned like it was supposed to. It did not have any issues. So if you're listening to this, somebody from Trezor, try to replace the cables. <laughs> and people with fat fingers, you should also get like a stylus, like for one euro. Okay, so let's get to the part about the ledger because apparently they are the biggest selling company in this industry. And they have two devices, the Nano S and the Nano X. I don't think they're very much different. It's all about convenience and whether or not you want to use Bluetooth or have lots of apps installed on it or have some sort of autonomous battery. I think the X has that one. So what do you like about the Ledger devices and what do you think that the Bitbox O2 does better? Uh, one thing I, I want to mention about the Ledger team is that they have the Dungeon security team, which I find really impressive. So they put out a lot of research about you know, how to break, especially hardware wallets on the physical level. I think they're doing extremely great and interesting work and valuable work. They should keep doing this. And for the Ledger device itself, I think it was a pretty genius move that they actually added the Bluetooth for the Nano X because that allows you to connect to the iPhone, which is, uh, you know, very good for iPhone iPhone users, of course. So yeah, that was really good for good of them. Uh, for the Bitbox O2, um, I, I think the so we also have a secure chip like the Ledger, but I think the way we employ it. Um, is something I like better in our solution. So in the ledger, they have a closer chip, but also all the cryptographic operations run inside that chip. So basically, you cannot verify what is going on inside. And in the Bitbox O2, we have studied a long time how to use a secure chip that is, you know, kind of a black box, but use it in a way where we can, you know, still be open source completely. And the way it works is that uh, we kind of use the secure chip in a way where no matter what it does, it cannot degrade the security of the device. So even if, for example, it you know, returned constant randomness or it didn't do the KDF stretching for the encryption as it should be, nothing bad happens. So basically then it degrades to as if there was no secure chip at all. But if it does the job as advertised, then the security is greatly improved because then the, you know, the encryption of the seed is massively more strong. So I think that's a really, really neat approach that we have. And yeah, so secure chip for better encryption, but also not relying on it like, for security. I remember an article from Ledger and they were trying to distinguish between their secure element chip and all the other chips that they were calling something like memory chips or something. And they were like, yeah, but these are kind of general purpose. You find them in microwave ovens and stuff like that. And ours is dedicated for this one purpose of security. But, you know, there is always this trade-off with open source transparency and making sure that the device does exactly what it's supposed to do and what it says yeah. it does. So well, here's the future where there's open source secure chips, right? Still waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so we spoke about the ledger. Let's talk about the cold card. And this is a can of worms because it can get very heated once you take it on Twitter. There are people who will be upset about the fact that you discovered some vulnerabilities in the cold card, but at the same time, they should be grateful because you've made their devices more secure. And it's preferable that you are the ones who find the vulnerabilities as opposed to some hacker. So what would you say is something that the cold card does well? And what does the Bitbox O2 do better? Uh, so one thing that the cold card does well for sure is that they um, really help popularize the use of partially signed Bitcoin transactions. In short, it's called PSPTs. And PSPTs are basically uh, just a binary file format that like standardizes how Bitcoin transactions can be stored and transmitted. And Andrew Chow, I think, originally offered this, but I really think Coldcard did like a lot to like push for adoption and to make it basically interoperable with other wallets and so on. So that, that was really good, I think. And what I think is better in the Bitbox or two is uh, the whole side of usability. Like the Coldcard doesn't have a companion app; they have integrations with like independent apps like Electrum. Whereas the Bitbox or two has those as well, but we have a dedicated companion app and it's just so much easier to like have a tight integration between the app and the device and like optimize for usability if you control both the device and the software that people use. So I think usability is definitely better in the Bitbox or two. Yeah, I also want to mention the similarities between the devices as both of them, the Bitbox O2 and the cold card mark free use the ATEX C608A secure chip. But in terms of microcontroller, they have the STM32L4, which runs at 80 megahertz. And the Bitbox O2 has the ATSAM D51, which runs at 120 megahertz. So the 40 extra megahertz are actually responsible for the faster multi-sig results that you find in Jameson Lop's test for CASA. I've actually done some research in this respect because I was curious to know what the difference actually is and why some hardware wallets are faster than the others. And it turns out that you, you have a faster microcontroller processor. Yeah, I, I wasn't even aware of that, to be honest. And yeah, maybe it's responsible for some of the speedups. Maybe it's also the way, you know, Transactions are streamed and processed. That could be a lot of things. I'm actually also not sure what the reason will be. But it's a good result anyway, right? Hey, psst. Hey. What's your plan for the next Bitcoin top? Unless you need the money to purchase something, you probably should not touch infinitely inflationary fiat. Check out Voltoro and figure out to which extent Hard money like gold and silver can help you preserve your purchasing power. You will be able to get back into Bitcoin as soon as the price hits a new bottom and you will not be subjected to the arbitrary inflation-driven volatility of fiat or fiat-backed coins. Obviously, this is not financial advice and you should understand that all trading involves risks. Wasabi Wallet connects to your full Bitcoin node, 
and if you're not running one, it downloads block filters anonymously via Tor. In either case, you're getting excellent privacy. Download the software today at wasabiwallet.io. I also recall a conversation in which you tried to explain that PSBTD does not really improve security. Uh -huh. Well, PSBT is basically it's just an encoding of uh, of Bitcoin transactions. Basically, it is unrelated to security per se. What you might be referring to is you know that some pe some people conflate the word PSBT with air gap signing, which is a different story. And yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. Go so, on, go on. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So um, well. So uh, we have a lot of users actually asking us, you know, when will you enable air-gapped operations in the Bitboxer 2? Because we also have a micro SD card slot, so we could, in theory, like instead of using the USB cable, we could use the micro SD card to transmit and sign transactions directly on the Bitboxer 2 using PSPT. And so um, when we think about adding this feature, we really want to take like a principled approach and figure out where exactly does this help and where doesn't it help and like does it help at all, etc. And just in general to say like when would AirGap help in general? So in my opinion, is when you assume that the hardware wallet has no security issues and it works as advertised, like even with the USB connection, you don't need you don't need any AirGap because. By definition, it works as it should be, right? There's no security issue. So AirGap kind of helps if, if you assume that there are bugs or security issues lurking that are not discovered yet, maybe discovered by the bad guys. And then maybe it could help you like mitigate your risk, right? Because if it's AirGapped, maybe it's an, an attacker will have a much harder time getting to your funds or it will be impossible. So I, I started thinking about this a little bit in more detail. like. Back in the day, I just basically said, yeah, sure, we will probably add this at some point because it's a no-brainer. It's like good for security. It's just the downside is this, the usability is it basically sucks, right? You have to shuffle back and forth micro SD cards. The process of signing takes forever. Just a very bad user experience. And we really want to have good user experience with everything we do. So then um, I took another look after, you know, we get more requests and also, uh, the Bitbox R2 um, has been on the sending and receiving end of a few security vulnerabilities, right? So I've been taking a look at them and seeing, do they apply also to AirGap or not? For example, um, all hardware wallet vendors got a report from Salim that there was an issue with SegWit um, in offline signers in particular, where an attacker could basically uh, like clear all the funds from your account and send them to the miner in a fee or maybe even to a different attacker in a more exotic like shape of this attack. And there were other issues, for example, I reported one to the Trezor folks where, you know, with the use of a sneaky multi-sig input, you could, you could steal all the single-sig funds in the Trezor by redirecting them to a multi-sig change output that is controlled by the attacker. And then also recently, I discovered by accident the cold card multi-sig setup bug where if you use the malicious computer to set up a multisig with cold cards, then you might not even be in control of the, well, the cold cards might not be in control of the multisig, but the attacker will be, which is obviously not good. So um, there's like those examples and many more where I looked over them and I realized that it doesn't really matter if you use SD cards or QR codes or USB cable to transmit the data, the attacks are all the same. 
and they're independent of the way of communication. So in my opinion, like, well, this basically changed my opinion that Eric Abt is a silver bullet to, it's not a silver bullet, right? You can have a lot of issues applied to Eric Abt systems just the same way. But then um, in the, when I wrote the report about the cold car multisig bug, I also realized that they have a feature where you could set up the multisig with SD cards without the computer. Right? So you could just pass the SD card from cold card to cold card. And there, the attack would be much harder to pull off. Basically, AirGap did what it was supposed to do. It mitigated a bug that was existing in real life. Effectively, if you do it like completely AirGap, like you don't talk to the or put the SD card into the computer at all. So I think in, in that scenario, actually, AirGap does help, even if it's like a marginal benefit. It is a tangible one. So I, like my opinion changed from this that to the, you know, back and forth and back again. So now I think it does help, but it, I think it really doesn't help all that much with transaction signing because transaction signing necessarily involves communication to the host computer. So yeah, um, the, so QR codes are the same story. It's just another mode of communication. So all the, all the issues apply there the same way or not. And yeah, so Maybe we'll add support to the Bitbox or two, but if we do, then probably we'll start with like the completely air operations, like you know, generating receive addresses and setting up wallets, and you know, potentially defer the multisig, oh, sorry, the transaction signing to a later day where we have like more data on how to actually make it more secure. Oh, uh, and, it uh, makes you wonder, so, right? Because should, so just one more disclaimer: I should also say that this is basically um, highly active research right now, so I could change my opinion. It, I, I do change my opinion basically on a daily basis right now because I'm in the process of just studying and analyzing all this stuff. So I, I plan to write actually a report about this maybe in, in the next months. But yeah, until then, maybe I will have something different to say. So just as a disclaimer. It makes you wonder why the cold car people hate you so much because you're helping them a whole lot by discovering stuff that maybe they did not come across. Yeah, I mean, I, I really am not looking for any drama at all. And I've actually, in fact, I am so busy with Bitbox or two work and I prefer it so much that I, I wish I didn't discover those flaws in a way. Like I wish I didn't exist, right? So like going through a disclosure process is just time consuming and nerve wracking, especially if afterwards you get like abuse from, from all over the place. That is not nice. But yeah, I mean, uh, once it's discovered, it has to be reported. Like there's no way around that. And I, I should also say, like, yeah, we, I spent all my time on the Bitbox or two, and the disclosures, like the issues I found, were basically totally by accident. For example, the one I disclosed to Trezor, where there could be a man in the middle holding your funds at ransom with a passphrase. If you sent a passphrase from the computer to the hardware wallet, there could be some shenanigans. This just happened because I was like thinking, oh, this would be a nice feature for the Bitbox R2 because I don't want to always type in my long passphrase on the Bitbox R2. I want to send it from the computer. And I was like thinking, how can I do this, right? Like what, what are the steps involved to implement this for the Bitbox R2? Then I realized, wait a second, I never like actually confirmed the passphrase on the Trezor device when I was using it in the past. And then I just had to report that. And very similar stories are for like the other disclosures, including the, the cold card disclosures. Yeah. Yeah, so this is why it's useful to have many more companies working on research as opposed to just clones. There are lots of clones on the market, but there are very few researching companies that 
try to bring something new and look at thread models and try to understand how their device works as compared to the others. So yeah, yeah, you mentioned QR codes and I know that there's the Kobo vault, which relies on this principle that instead of using external ports and connecting to computers, you scan QR codes with a camera. What do you think about it? Do you, is there anything that you like about the Kobo and what do you think that the Bitbox O2 does better? Yeah, so actually I don't own a Kobo yet, so I can't really like comment too much about how I, what I think about it. I, I never actually used it in practice. So I, I guess we'll have to skip this question. So what I can say is that I've seen tweets and blog posts from the Kobo folks and they seem very not, not knowledgeable about what they do. So I have a good impression of them, but can't say much about the device for now. Yeah, it's interesting how the Kobo works as it does PSBT. It does lots of cold card features, but at the same time, it makes use of that camera. So yeah, Lixin Liu, CEO of Kobo. If you're listening to this, you should send Benma one of these Kobos so he can look into it. Maybe he finds something useful like he did for the cold card. Yeah, I and pay him a bounty if he does. <laughs> Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> okay, so there are also newer hardware wallets on the market. You have the Foundation Devices Passport, you have the Jade by Blockstream, and a few others like Elipal, and what's the other one? Something Pal. Uh, maybe SafePal? SafePal, yeah. I always forget that one. Do you know anything about them? How would you comment on what they do on the market? Yeah, uh, same answer here, actually. So I've been really, really busy with Bitbox O2 that I actually didn't even have time to like use any of the other devices. So I do have a Blockstream Jade on my desk, but it's still wrapped and packaged. And I will be like given a Spectre DIY by an acquaintance pretty soon. But I'm also not sure when I will have the time to actually look at it. But yeah, once I have the time, I will be happy to take a look. But for now, I can't say much about those devices. So when it comes to hardware wallets, and this is quite a developing industry, and it's very dynamic, and we see lots of events happening every month, and we change our opinions about the devices every month, depending on how they perform and how they react to these attacks. What are the security advancements that get you most excited? I would say I'm currently really passionate about the topic of multisig because multisig is a very, very great thing to, to have and do. But I think at the moment, the way people use um, horror wallets, especially with multisig, it's actually less, I think, less secure than single signature. And let me tell you why. Um, so one, one part of the story is basically that I think the UX of multisig is very bad at the moment. For example, like imagine you have a two out of three multisig setup and you have like one seed stored at one location, another seed stored like another location and the third seed stored at yet another location. And then, you know, two out of three, you're allowed to lose one of the seats in theory. But if you do, you cannot actually recover your funds unless you know all three public keys belonging to those seats. And that is something like I think an average, you know, user beginning with multisig just doesn't know. They think if you have two out of three, then you can recover, but that's just not true, unfortunately. And the reason is that you know the public keys are part of the 
output in the like output script, which is hashed on the chain. So you would, will have to provide all the public keys if you want to spend your coins again. So this is like one example where um, you know even backing up a multisig properly is pretty difficult. And another part is um, you know assuming you use hardware wallets and assuming also that your computer that you use to coordinate your multisig is compromised. Right, that's the point of hardware wallets. Then also the way you know hardware wallets are currently in use most of the time is very insecure because um, a computer can always, for example, try to insert fake public keys instead of the real public keys. So in, to get like a perfect setup at the moment, you have to like safely be, you have to be able to safely verify all the XPUBs of the hardware wallets on the hardware wallets themselves, which is like very very tricky. Even if the like first of all, not our, not all hardware wallets support this at all. Like verification of XPUBs. But even if they do, it's just very difficult to get right because what do you like? How do you verify it on a technical level? What do you look for? Where, what do you compare it to, etc.? And it's just also very time consuming. So I think there's a lot of like issues like this that prevent multisig from really being easy to use and great. So I'm really excited about the advancements I see coming there. One of them is like Hugo from Nunchuck recently released a Bitcoin improvement proposal to like standardize the setup of multisig, which is one important step. And hopefully it will you know, do away with expert verification completely, which I think is the biggest pitfall. And yeah, there, there'll probably be more of those, like how to back it up in a standardized way, in a safe way. So really excited about that. Right. So basically you're saying that at this point, multi-sigs are not yet there and do not fulfill what they claim to do just because we don't have proper standards. Uh, well, yeah, kind, yeah, kind of, because standards just help it help every implementer, every wallet, every coordinator, every hardware wallet to just do the right thing. At the moment, it's kind of all over the place. Like I, I've been browsing through a lot of multi-sig setup tutorials in the internet, and I think I didn't find a single one that just didn't put like critical trust into the computer, like at some point in the process. And it, you know, if it's like a big issue in practice, different story. But I, as a researcher, I always look at if I owned the computer, if I had compromised it, could I like do some harm? Could I steal funds? Could I like lock up funds? Could I make you lose funds? And with all those tutorials at the moment, the answer is clear yes, which is frightening to me. So I, I think there's like a lo long way to go, but we will get there for sure, where people can set up a multisig like wallet and use it intuitively also in a safe way, just like single sig today, right? I mean, single sig is something where people can most of the time do the right thing like just because it's easier to use so what do you think about shamir backups with shamir secret sharing i think that's pretty much the main selling point of the trezor model t you get it so you can do that type of setup yeah so i'm um, shamir secret sharing i think it's mainly about the backups so when you back up your seed you can back it but back it up in a way where for example you can have three shards and you need two of them to recover but once you do recover, you assemble the seed or the private keys again in one location, which is, you know, a, a downside compared to multisig, where the keys are always separate. You can keep them separate from each other at all times, even when signing the transaction. So in a, in a sense, it kind of has the same or similar properties to multisig, but just restricted to backups. So I think multisig, in a sense, is strictly superior because it does backups the same way, but also signing in a distributed fashion. But that being said, of course, as I just mentioned, I think multisig is 
not very usable at the moment in the way it is currently like implemented in hardware and software wallets. So for the time being, I do think Xiaomi offers a great benefit with backups. Also, especially because, um, you know, you have, uh, for example, if you use Xiaomi secret sharing, you can distribute the copies physically instead of like using a passphrase, which I think is very difficult to use and has a lot of potential for mistakes as well. So physical security in this sense can be easier than trying to remember or store passwords. So yeah, I think, I think for the time being, Xiaomi secret sharing is great, but I do expect Multisig basically to subsume this in the future. Yeah, I think for the average person, they do kind of the same thing. And Shamir Secret Sharing also has the disadvantage that it's not supported by more devices. It's open source, so you can build your own Trezor if needed. But at the same time, it, you know, it's kind of limiting to do the kind of setup that only works with one type of device. Yeah, this reasoning is actually what I just said is one of the reasons why we haven't spent much effort into looking to integrate it into the Bitboxo 2 yet. Because I, I think kind of it will be absolute once Maltes, the Multisig story will be straightened out. And that is just a matter of time. Like everyone is working on it. But isn't there the issue of paying high fees on chain when you do Multisigs? That's a very good point. Yeah, Multisig transactions are bigger. So they, so you will have to pay more fees for them. That that is indeed the downside at the moment. There is hope though, because uh, the good folks like Jonas Nick and others are working on uh, Peter Willy also are working on music, which is basically multisig in an basically off-chain fashion, where you have like a simple, like a simple small transaction on the chain, but it encodes a multisig behind the scenes. So there's technical improvements that can help reduce the fees in the future here. So are you convinced that once in their final form and standardized, multi-sigs are the silver bullet for security? Yeah, pretty, pretty damn near, yeah. I mean, it's always hard to say like total silver bullet because, you know, as time goes by, people tend to discover more flaws and issues or like ways people abuse the, abuse it to, for their own, like not benefit, but the opposite of benefit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think the, in general, the security properties is, are really, really good. Like you can distribute your seats, you can sign in distributed fashion. The only question then is like straightening out how to, how to set it up and how to use it in practice. But I think once this is all ironed out, it will be, it will be really good. Yeah. Close to Silver Bullet. So there are some people out there like J.W. Wetterman and Armand Deparman and some others on Twitter who tell people not to use hardware wallets and instead, for example, J.W. Wetterman tells you to get an old laptop, wipe it or have a new hard drive installed and then run Bitcoin Core and do your own air-gapped setup. Whereas Armand Department tells you to do your own setup using a Raspberry Pi Zero. Both of them have tutorials and some of their own solutions. What do you think about their approaches? And do you think that people should trust their methods or trust hardware wallets? Or do you think that people should still buy hardware wallets, given that we have these solutions, which may be more general purpose and affordable? 
So, uh, in my opinion, the goal is to get like as many people as possible that want to enter the Bitcoin space into self custody. And I, I really think hardware wallets have like the an excellent trade off when it comes to this. Like, it is definitely the most easy to use way to get into Bitcoin and to say, store it, but at at a very good security level too, right? Of course, you can do easier with hot wallet, but they're not secure. And before hardware wallets, like there were daily reports of massive theft. Yeah, so so really, I I think that so this is an excellent trade-off, and people, especially like not technical people, should get hardware wallets for sure. It's a much easier to not screw up. But uh, you know, if you use offline computers and old computers, then I, I guess in theory you could have better security, but only if you really really know what you're doing, and it's also very inconvenient, right? It is very time-consuming. So I, I think even. So if you're technical, you can try to attempt this. But even then, I think as an expert, there's a lot of pitfalls you can walk into when you use such solutions. And you know, I, I recently read a, a post by Andreas Antonopoulos on Reddit, and I really think he put it pretty pretty nicely. Basically said that if you use like a system like this, for could also be like Tails or like other stuff that people suggest instead of hardware wallets a lot of times, is that at one point or another, you walk into some some problem where the solution is not like documented or obvious, or it's not just not very streamlined. Then you start improvising. For example, oh, you know, Electrum gives me a notification that I should update, so I will update and I get malware on my machine, or like tons of examples where something could go wrong, especially if you start improvising. And then there's the whole story of how do you set it up correctly? How do you verify the binaries you run? How do you like, yeah, it's a basically never ending story. So in, in short, I, I really think that if you're very, very technical, then this might be the way to go. But even then, Horowal is like, have such a great trade-off. Like I, I wouldn't spend my time like tinkering with advanced solutions if the Horowal does a job. And then of course, also there's the whole question of like how much code is running there, right? A hardware wallet has very small firmware dedicated to the one job and not just the code, but also like the documentations running into the communities and the processes. So, um, and on the nothing computer, you have you know, millions of lines of operating system code and thousands of software packages that you don't know the like root of possibly. So it's not obvious to me that even then offline computers would be better. Yeah, it's always complicated and there's always a layer of trust involved. So I suppose the best way sometimes is to just do the most common, to follow the most common approach, the most tested one, the one that people have been using for the most number of years before you came along and decided that you also want to set your own security system. And I think that the software for hardware wallets has a lot of testing and scrutiny and in a sense is like a honeypot for hackers because if there was any major issue and if there was just one vulnerability, you could exploit and do a lot of harm. And in a sense, I, I appreciate that hardware wallets were created early on and were allowed to develop in their nascent way without the pressure of bull markets. It wasn't until, I guess, 2017 that the industry really took off 
and it became a standard that you should own a hardware wallet. So until then, there was a lot of useful development. And even now, we have a lot of disclosures and a lot of research that goes into the devices and they're being perfected. Whereas I can understand this idea of running Bitcoin Core and nothing else and designing your own air-gapped system. But there are so many points of failure there and you can never know if your hardware of choice is going to be good enough, if it's not compromised, if the person who you're trusting with the setup and the tutorial does not write something malevolent in that Python code that you have to type. So I suppose it's always difficult and you don't know who to trust in this space, but you can see that some people have used that and have not lost any coins. So the more people use something, I suppose, the safer it is. But that's kind of a dumb criteria at the same time, as I'm sure that you have lots of Chinese clones of the Trezor that have been sold by the millions. But it still doesn't mean that they're very safe. It just means that they were affordable and people bought them just because they were affordable and they were on Amazon or eBay. Yeah, I think the best argument against our wallet that could be made is probably around the issue of supply chain attacks, as you just mentioned, like fake clones and whatnot. But even then, it's not obvious to me that alternatives are better. And I'm I'm convinced that the alternatives are basically just not feasible for the everyday person. Like, I will be able to give my pop like a Bitbox or two, and they will like be able to get into Bitcoin and hold it himself in a very safe fashion. Whereas there's no hope we will ever be able to like set up an offline computer without messing one of the critical steps up. It's just like no way. So yeah, and as I said, like the goal is to get as many people into self-custody as possible. And I do think our wallets are the only way that this is possible. Exactly. But when I spoke with Trace Mayer in December 2018, I think it was, no, 2019, he mentioned that there is always the risk of encountering a database that the manufacturer has and your specific device has a serial number and it can get identified accordingly. And in the unfortunate event that you have something like the ledger database leak, there can be a lot of information that's associated between your device, your IP address. In the case of Ledger, it was directly the full name and the address in some cases, which is the worst case scenario. But my question to you right now concerns your privacy against Shift Crypto as a company. So I know that when you connect your device to the Bitbox app, you connect to the Electrum servers of Bitbox, of Shift Crypto. Right. And you can also connect to your own to remove this extra layer of trust. But I suppose that most people don't do that. So how can they be sure that there is not much data stored about them and the company does not have their IP addresses and how many coins they own and the hackers cannot take that away in some way or fashion? Um, when, when you connect the Bitbox or two to your app, uh, the app will have to get information about how many, like, what are your addresses and how many, like, which addresses have which transactions associated. Just, just for the record, the Bitcoin address is not home addresses. Oh yes, so exactly. Yeah, the XPub. Yep. 
basically XPub related info. Like the, the app has to basically scan the blockchain in some way or form to figure out your balance and what transactions you've had in the past. And the easiest way to do it right now is indeed to just connect to the shift servers because this is instant even if you restore from a backup. Whereas if you had your own like some other mechanism, it could be more, a lot more difficult. So how, how can you trust that we don't abuse this thing? I would say like one part is reputation. Like we, we do not store any logs and we do anonymize IP addresses, etc. But it's at the same time true that you have no way of really verifying that. So I think if you, if you have worries about this, you should definitely look into connecting your own full node and then none of the data leaks to our servers at all. And yeah, so this is one part. And then like what, what does the app send to the, to the shift servers? It's basically the, what is it? The, it's the hashes of the output scripts of your like outputs that you own, which is not exactly the addresses, but close enough, but it doesn't send any XPUBs. But even then, like anyway, we don't log anything. We just keep them running in RAM and that's it. And then of course there's the whole other side where um how do you order a bitbox in a in a good private way? And also here the answer is kind of similar. Like we do we do not store your data on a hot machine forever. We basically purge the data after 30 days and put it in some offline encrypted archive where it's not accessible anymore to like hackers, ideally. And also in our support system, we we basically, once the support ticket is closed, we purge the data after like 20 or 30 days completely, including all attachments. So we do all of this stuff, but of course, like you cannot verify it really, unfortunately, at least not with the current technology. So you should probably, well, not probably, definitely look out for ways where you can improve your privacy without trusting us. And one of them, for example, is, you know, order the bitbox not to your home, but to maybe the company you work at and get it there or like buy a huge batch of them and sell it forward to your friends. Or oh, one important part, for example, is um, when you pay for the bitbox O2, even though I know it hurts, if you use your precious Satoshis, then it goes straight to our self-hosted BTC pay server. And there's no like payment provider like Stripe in the middle that gets some of your data. So this, these are some of the things you can do to improve your privacy. Yeah, I think this is worth noting that when you use your credit card, the information can be leaked by your bank and the payments processor. So even if you don't consent to it, and even if Shift Crypto never, never tells them or never tells anyone else that you bought a hardware wallet, they're going to know and they're going to share this information with their marketing partners. And at its most innocent use, this can trigger some ads that you see on your computer when you access your accounts. But at its worst, this can actually get you unbanked. And I actually know some people who had their bank accounts closed because they were, I don't know, caught. Is that the right word for it? Probably they, were, not. <laughs> they were buying Bitcoin. That's it. Yeah. So having had activity on well-known exchanges has determined the bank to stop their accounts. Yeah, I also know some people like this and I've been also under scrutiny by my own bank because of this. It's like a tragedy. It's like really not acceptable this is still happening. Yeah, I know. I have no idea what it takes for them to accept that Bitcoin is going to be around, but I suppose they do this because of consumers who threaten to sue them. Not consumers, clients customers 
for example, they do something dumb and they buy some shit coin. And after that, they, they lose their money on the exchange and they try to do a chargeback or something to say that it wasn't them who used the card or something like that. So I suppose this can be used by banks to protect themselves against bad actors who use the policies to recover their losses on shit coins. Yeah, and there is no way, you know, when you deal with exchanges, there is no way for the bank to know that you actually bought Bitcoin as opposed to something else because you transfer your money to that exchange. So I suppose we need more Bitcoin only exchanges. So there can be like a whitelist for banks, but that's another discussion for another <laughs> day. Yep. So what is next for Bitbox 2 do you think that Shift Crypto will deliver on the other devices that it was working on, like the Bitbox Baseful node? And I remember you also had some very nice covers for your webcam, which I don't find anymore on your website. And I suppose you had lots of plans, but at some point in 2020, you decided that you will only focus on the development of the Bitbox O2 to make it as good as possible, which is a noble pursuit in itself. But I'm actually curious to know what's next. Yeah, so uh, Bitbox Base was really, in my opinion, an awesome project. So what this was supposed to be is a, a Bitcoin full node that is plug and play, like you plug it into your wall. And it just starts working, including like Tor and automatic integration into the Bitbox app and basically what you can do with full node connection, but very seamless and easy. And this is a really powerful idea. Uh, for example, I have multiple nodes running and one of them is at my home. And it's like basically an old laptop. It even has like a, an, an external hard drive hanging off of the side. It takes a lot of space because the internal drive is so small and then every once in a while it just stops working for whatever reason so it's like a huge pain in the ass i think to run a full node and this was supposed to just fix it right bitbox space you plug it in works super nice project but you know this project and a couple other stuff so there came a time when we realized that we have only so many resources and we really want to do everything as well as we can like Bitbox Base, we wanted to make the make it the perfect product. We wanted to make it the Bitbox O2 the perfect product, and so on. And just realized we, we couldn't deliver on on like this this ideal and this hope if we did all of those projects at the same time. So it was a really tough day, but we had to really just conclude that we had to basically cut out all the project except one, uh, the Bitbox O2, and just put all our energy into making that better and better. I think it's, you know, it's been paying off hugely. Like ever since we've done that, I think the progress on the Bitbox R2 and the Bitbox app has been like skyrocketing. Like we've been listening to what users need and want and what is not working so well for them. And I've just been polishing and improving and adding features month by month. It's a really satisfying process to basically just be able to focus on one thing. And yeah, users gave us the feedback that it's getting better and that, you know, the Bitbox is spreading. Uh, it was a really good decision, I think, in hindsight. It was not so clear at the beginning, but now it's clear, I think. Yeah, and I hope that you guys get more successful as I feel like your research gets a lot of attention. So when you publish something to disclose some vulnerabilities, you get a lot of attention. But otherwise, I don't see many people tweeting out about how they use their Bitbox O2 and how cool it is. And it's cool. So you deserve to get some more credit for your work. Thank you so and much. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, deserve I mean, it just for 
the purpose you that you do useful research that everyone else can use for their devices. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a challenge getting to be, you know, getting known and, you know, having more adoption of the Bitbox or two, but I think we are on a really good path. Like, like right now the demand is surging, people are telling their friends about it. So it's, it's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the device itself is working super nicely for our users. They all give great feedback. So yeah, please, please spread the word, write articles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to write some because I've played quite for a few hours with the Bitbox O2. I've also tested it with third-party wallets. I've spoken with members of your team. I've tried to use it with my stupid Android phone and it did not work because of the adapter. So maybe I should look, you know, because it doesn't have the USB-C port, it has the USB-A micro. So I, I needed to get an adapter and the one that I bought did not work. So it, it's a process. Okay. Maybe I should get a new Android phone, but I don't like Android too much. So <laughs> maybe that at some point I will get one of these Google Pixel phones and run, what's the name of that OS? Graphene? Oh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, uh, be, does it work with Graphene? The uh, Bitbox O2? I'm, I'm actually not sure. I don't, I've never used Graphene. I don't think we have it in our regular testing. So I'll have to check it out. But I mean, theory it should. Like there's, um, it works on most devices. Yeah, I mean, that should be a test in itself. So I'm going to try to create some more Bitbox O2 content just out of appreciation Thank you. for the work that you do, which gets really overlooked. And I think you guys deserve more. Thanks so much. This so what's nice next for you, Benma? You write articles, you do research, you write code. What do you look forward to in the next few months? Oh, I mean, basically more of the same, right? So I really enjoy the process of like getting feedback from our users, what they really need or want, and then just delivering on those things. So yeah, we'll just keep coding, keep improving the app, keep improving the Bitbox or two, keep improving usability. And, you know, on the side, of course, uh, you know, put out more research as, as it comes. For example, AirGap is one thing I mentioned I want to do more research on. And we keep also like innovating on security, like anti-klepto and so on. So I'm really like, my, my dream day is half time just coding on the Bitbox or two. And the other half is like figuring out some neat way to reduce trust and improve like security overall. I like how that sounds. So good luck with that. And thank you very much for this interview. No, thank you. It was great talking to you. Voltoro has a 100% track record with fully audited and insured gold bullion that are secured in a top-tier tax-free Swiss vaulting facility. It also features the generous affiliate program OTC Trading of physical delivery and pickup or trade back to Bitcoin in seconds. Register for free and check out the ways in which you can trade hard money and preserve your wealth. And if you want to help this show, sign up using the voltero.com slash Bitcoin Takeover link that you can also find in the description. Keep in mind that this is not financial advice, all trading involves risks, and you are responsible for your own decisions. Wasabi Wallet's innovative coin joints will make your Bitcoins more fungible. 
So if you accumulate more than 0.1 BTC, you can mix it with other users to remove all traces about their whereabouts. So it's like putting multiple fingerprints on your dollar bills and it becomes impossible to determine the last few owners of the money. Download Wasabi Wallet today and start coin joining!